Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lifcott-Hames. Today, we'll be answering more of your listener questions. And joining me to answer them is Getting In's expert, Steve Lemenager. Steve, as listeners will remember, is a former director of admissions at Princeton University. He's now the president of Advice, a private college counseling firm in New Jersey. Welcome back, Steve. It's great to be back, Julie. So, Steve, let's dive right into the listener questions. We got this voice memo from a mom in Michigan. My name is Elena Tapia, and I'm from Lansing, Michigan. My daughter's high school discourages the kids from taking AP classes until their junior year. I insisted that she take one as a sophomore, but that was not normal practice or is not normal practice there. So my question is, you know, when she applies and admissions officers see that she has significantly less AP classes than some other students from other schools, is that going to be an issue? Um, Is there any way that the school, you know, maybe in their profile to the college or whatnot, lets the college know that that's their policy. Thank you so much. Steve, what do you think of Elena's question? Well, I, I would say she should be reassured and her daughter should be reassured that that colleges will look very carefully at the school profile to, to see what the policies are about APs and when they're allowed to be taken and so forth. And they'll be compared in the context of, of their high schools. Now, I, I can't say universally that colleges... Do, do it that way. But, but I, I can say for, that mostly, most colleges will look at students within the context of their high school. Yeah. And so if she's taken advantage of the rigor of the school at which she attends, then she's going to be fine. You know, APs are actually wildly overrated as an admission <laughs> credential. And so um, it's, it's a nice mean? program, but I, I, I have to say that it's become one of those tools that, um, that are, um, overemphasized when yeah. when families and kids are talking about rigor of a program and getting into colleges. Well, yeah, I mean as a former, you know, administrator at a college, I know from talking to faculty that, you know, it feels sort of offensive that all these high schoolers, sophomores in high school think they're actually capable of taking college level courses. I mean, <laughs> what is college for if we're bringing college level classes down into the sophomore year of high school? So, you know, when she described this as an odd policy, I thought, I don't think it's an odd policy. I'm kind of rooting for this Lansing, Michigan high school that seems to be saying, no, AP classes are appropriate for juniors and seniors. Uh, it sounds to me like maybe there's some wisdom at this school, not an odd, outdated policy, but maybe it's a new policy embracing the fact that things have gotten a little out of hand. Who knows? But um, yeah, to be sure, the context of the school that the kid's applying from, I mean, thats it's the admission officer's job to know what that school offers and to evaluate the kid within that context. That's right. And there, there are many schools that, that actually are, are doing away with, with AP courses and just doing a completely non-AP curriculum. And yeah. um, a lot of a lot of independent schools, but also some public schools, are doing that. And I think it's a it's a healthy way to think about learning. And there's, there's not a, a preset number of things that people need to know in order to be quote unquote educated or ready for college. 
Yeah, there's definitely reform underway. It's interesting. The College Board runs both the AP classes and the tests, I mean, the curriculum and and the tests, and then they run the SAT as well. And both of these concepts are really under significant scrutiny right now because of the extent to which they've just become a, a proxy somehow for rigor and learning, but maybe falsely so. All right bigger questions there we're not going to address today. But we've heard from several listeners asking for advice about how to choose someone like you in their lives, how to choose an independent college counselor, Steve. A young man in the Netherlands named Simcha Plotkin wrote us this message. Your podcasts have inspired me to look for an admissions counselor to help me navigate the admissions process. I find it very difficult to select a good admissions counselor since I live in the Netherlands. How would you go about selecting a good counselor? And we got this email from a mom named Anne wondering the same thing, how to go about picking an independent college counselor. My 10th grade daughter and I are starting to meet with independent college counselors, and I'm wondering if you have any advice in terms of what to look for in a counselor. We are interested in assistance with creating a list of schools, help moving through the process, and also we'll need some direction in finding schools that offer merit aid, since I don't expect my daughter will qualify for need-based aid. I have a couple of recommendations from friends who have worked with different counselors, and aside from fit with my daughter and getting an understanding of how the counselor sees their role, what else might I want to find out before making a choice? P.S. At some point, you mentioned a book about alumni reflecting on their experiences, but I'm not able to find it based on what I remember. Can you tell me the name of the book? Okay, so first I'll weigh in here with an answer to Anne's question. Uh, The name of that book that I referred to about the alumni reflecting on their experiences is The Alumni Factor. I believe it's thealumnifactor.org. So yeah, check that out. Now, over to you, Steve. What kind of advice do you have for Simcha and Anne? I would say that um, if you're in a different country, I think the best way to find independent educational consultants or counselors would be two sites to look at. Uh, IECA, Independent Educational Consulting Association, and HECA. And they have a list of independent counselors around the world. And so I think if you put in a search on those, you, you may be able to find some some great resources. Do you want someone who's in your country or do you, is this an, a process that can be handled online and via Skype? It can be handled electronically, absolutely. So um, okay. it depends on, you know, I would look at dig a little deeper and drill into the level of experience of the counselor. Um, and I think someone who's worked at at a high school or a university, either in college counseling or admission, is is important to have that experience. I think that yeah. that's that that's a huge factor. Also, um, I would ask them for their lists of successes over the years. Um, not just the outcomes, but in fact, you know, stories about where they've had a significant impact on a student and his or her outcomes or his or her process. Mm. Um, and I also think a face-to-face meeting, if, if feasible, is important to have, either when, mm. when the student comes to visit colleges in the U.S., if they're applying to U.S. colleges, they, they can come visit, or uh, we can always rely on FaceTime or, or Skype. So okay. th- those are the things I would, I would think about. There's also word of mouth. If you, if you have some American friends, I think you would uh, you do well to ask them their opinion and people they've, they've worked with or people they know about. Let's just take a step back and, and ask people or remind ourselves, our listeners, or ask the question, what, what's an independent college counselor for? What, why does one 
potentially want one? Why does one benefit from working with one? Well, that's a that's a big question. I think um, it it depends on who you are and what you're looking for. Um, I think independent counselors can be a, an important second opinion or second voice to the high school college counselor. They could also be someone who has an expertise that the person at their school does not have, whether it's related to learning disabilities or perhaps um, we talk, we've talked about those with art, artistic talents and, and guiding students who have those talents to the proper school. So there, there are a lot of specialties within the independent counseling world that could be helpful to, to some students. And, and I think just many, many large public high schools simply don't have the resources to, to have uh, college counselors for all of the students in their school, at least to have the, the amount of time that students will need in order to develop a good list and a good strategy for applications. So um, mm. just that, that ratio of, of students to... Yeah to counselors it can be a little scary. And I think yeah. outside help is often helpful. So getting the attention you need through a process that's pretty nuanced and tricky. That's right. And finally, we got this voice memo from a mom in Virginia. College counselors are not an option for us for financial reasons. So finding you has been amazing. My son is a junior in Virginia. He attends a specialty center at an excellent high school to which he was admitted by very competitive application. He currently has a GPA of 4.7 plus, weighted to reflect AP classes. He will have 12 AP classes by the time he graduates. He has a published scientific paper and is a competitive swimmer, probably D3. He is equally interested in science and public policy or political science and is thinking about ways to combine his seemingly diverse interests with a career in medicine, global health, or public health maybe. In the course of looking at college options, I learned that while he is drawn to the more selective schools and loves being surrounded by kids who are passionate about learning, he really intensely dislikes an elbow sharpening and competitive environment. He is fed up with the crazy competition for GPA and rank and taking the quote-unquote right courses. He really just wants to enjoy learning and exploring his options and interests. When we toured Brown, he fell in love with it. He loves the open curriculum and that learning for learning's sake is highly encouraged and that the students there seemed supportive and happy to be there. Are there any other schools out there that you know of that have a more open curriculum like Brown? He liked Princeton and Johns Hopkins because they had concentrations rather than a set curriculum. Second question, how can I guide him to include other schools that are less selective? With his varied interests, how do we reduce the list of colleges to a reasonable number? He seems to love and be able to see himself at any institution of higher learning. Thanks for your advice and your help. We are so grateful to have found you. Sounds like an amazing kid, Steve. What are your thoughts for this family? Well, I, th I think, let me give some, some concrete ideas about other places. If, if he loved Brown and he loved the idea of flexible and open curriculum, then I think th there are some other places he should, should also look at. Um, Amherst College in Massachusetts, Hamilton College in New York, uh, the University of Rochester in New York, and Vassar College. Um, in addition to that, there's a, there's a great program at Carnegie Mellon University, which they call a BXA degree. And that's where they, they cross, and that's what the X is for, I believe, but I'm not sure. They cross arts with either humanities or with science or with computer science. So it's an interdisciplinary degree that allows students immense flexibility in choosing the courses that actually suit their interests, where they don't have to worry about distribution requirements or, or certainly a core curriculum. 
So those are the places that right off the top of my head, I would say the student should consider. Beautiful. You know, we're we're short on time today. Maybe we can take uh, the sort of balance of her questions in a later episode. But in the meantime, thanks so much for your question. All right, Steve, thank you for joining me once again today. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Julie. Thank you. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Send us your voice memos and emails to our email address, slate.com. And you can always leave a voicemail on our hotline, which I love because I love hearing your voice. That number is 929-999-4353. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. And if you can, please leave us a comment on iTunes because it helps other people discover the show. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Julie Lithcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting in somewhere. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices like iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book to try out from Audible is The Prize, Who's in Charge of America's Schools. Back in 2010, Mark Zuckerberg pledged $100 million to Newark, New Jersey to fix its ailing school system. And journalist Dale Rusakoff investigates what's happened since then. It's a story of high ideals, greed, celebrity, and street smarts. And she describes how reformers faced off against entrenched unions, skeptical parents, and bewildered students. If you want to listen to The Prize or many other books... Audible has it. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com slash college. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash college.